This is Lex Kibernetica, the cyber law podcast by the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Lex Kibernetica. What is human enhancement? How is it used in armies and in combat? And what are the challenges and dangers associated with enhanced soldiers? All this and more on this episode of Lex Kibernetica with your host, Ido Kainan. I'm Professor Noam Lubel. I'm a professor of law at the University of Essex and also a research associate at the Hebrew University Cybersecurity Program and Swiss Chair of Humanitarian Law at the Geneva Academy. I'm Erin Hahn. I'm a Senior National Security Analyst at the Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Laboratory. My name's Heather Harrison-Dennis. I'm a Senior Lecturer at the International and Operational Law Center at the Swedish Defense University. What is human enhancement? So that in itself is already a complicated question, and there have been lots of attempts to try and define uh, what we mean by human enhancement technologies. Uh, The most common one would usually be to differentiate between therapeutic uh, measures and those that enhance. Uh, So therapeutic would be, for example, if you think of vision, your glasses, my contact lenses, would be therapeutic because they are simply uh, bringing us uh, up to a certain, what we might call sort of the norm of what, what is expected um, as a human. And then enhanced would be if, if you had an implant that gave you night vision or enabled you to see uh, beyond, uh, say, you know, two kilometers into the distance, that, that would be an enhancement. Uh, but uh, e- even that's not so straightforward. Uh, so if you think about prosthetics, for example, uh, and you have a bionic prosthetic with, with a certain amount of strength, uh, how much strength do you put on that? Right. So, so often in the industry now, they'll do things like uh, build the prosthetic to a, the a 50th percentile male. Right. But if you give that prosthetic to someone who was in the 10% and was never, you know, never that strong in the first place. It's like, doctor, will I be able to play the piano if my hand heals? Exactly. Exactly. So, so there, there are questions there. What do we even mean by therapeutic versus enhancement? And none of it is straightforward, but that's probably one of the, one of the better ways to try and uh, define it. Talking about night vision and uh, improved uh, running skills, let's talk about military enhancement. So uh, for military applications, it, again, it's across the board with all types, all types of human enhancement can have military applications. So I, I suppose it's useful to just run through quickly the different types of enhancements that can exist. Uh, and here you can go from uh, certain pharmaceutical enhancements, uh, and that's um, historically there's there have been, uh, for example, militaries that have given amphetamines to soldiers, to pilots in particular, uh, but that's moved on now to modafinil, for example, which uh, some experiments have shown the ability to stay awake for days. Uh-huh. So you have pharmaceutical enhancements uh, on, on that level, and they're often to do with alertness. Uh, but uh, you can have physical enhancements that are, are more to do with uh, strength, uh, there's a question about exoskeletons. Is that a human enhancement technology or not? And it's, I suppose, because it's not permanent. It's not permanent. You can step in and out of it. So, is it a tank or is it? Is it uh, a vehicle? Is it mm-hmm. a vehicle? Is, is it sort of part, a vehicle that the human steps into, or, or is it something that is enhancing the the human's body? And uh, I, I think we're probably we're more at the vehicle stage, but we're moving towards uh, forms of exoskeletons that that might be considered uh, enhancements. Some of the, uh, there can be all sorts of mechanical, interesting ones. We spoke about vision, uh, but you can have things like uh, implants in your arm uh, that allow you to sense electromagnetic fields, right? Uh, so, so sensory enhancements can exist. The real fascinating stuff is around cognitive enhancements. 
And here we're talking about uh, uh, work that's being done to try and, and build, uh, for example, a memory enhancement. So you could have an implant that improves your memory. This is something that's been worked on at least from the Cold War. Oh, oh yeah. Most of this stuff is not new. It's just that uh, we're racing forwards now with, with, with breakthroughs in some of these areas. Uh, and when we talk about cognitive enhancements, uh, so memory is, is an obvious one. Uh, but there are people talking about ways to generally improve one's intelligence, uh, or uh, you know, you think of say Google Translate, but uh, but go back to sort of the Star Trek uh, versions where you have it actually implanted into you, uh, and and you automatically understand uh, all languages. How is it that we can understand one another? This device is able to translate over a thousand languages. You mean to say there are a thousand life forms out there? Not just a thousand. Hundreds of thousands. There's talk of uh, moral cognitive enhancements. You know, could we do something to your brain that that uh, changes your your moral character? I think that's that's a fascinating one. And then there's the the whole field of of BCI of brain computer interfaces, where where we are connecting brains directly to computers. So, for example, uh, it's possible to fly a drone with your brain. And you know, we 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 know the medical side of this. Uh, obviously, say for example, someone who is completely paralyzed can move their wheelchair with their thoughts, right? So, so if you use that in a military context, and you talk about say flying a, an aircraft with your brain, uh, there can be all sorts of advantages uh, to that. For example, one of the things they're looking at is whether uh, it means that we might be able to learn how to fly using intuition, the same way you keep your balance. And that would improve drastically, obviously, uh, the the uh, the flying skills of of anyone uh, in in the military. So there are all sorts of ways that this can affect uh, military performance. In what ways will armies need to change to adjust to human enhanced soldiers? So this is a huge topic. Um, one of the things we're looking at in our work is what type of enhancements might the military want to use and why. How they need to adjust will depend on a, on a couple things. It will depend, one, on how they're using the technology. So, for instance, is it something like an exoskeleton that's going to allow a soldier to take on a greater load, in which case, you know, you take the exoskeleton off and more or less the enhancement is removed? Or is it something like a brain-computer interface that they're going to use to help control um, various types of uh, apparatus that are used on the battlefield, in which case then it's very invasive. Um, so there are a bunch of questions about how will the technology affect force structure? So if I can deploy forward people who are enhanced, does that mean I can have fewer in the backdrop that are, you know, do I, do I deploy them to another area? So it kind of has to do with that. Or what are the operational missions I can now complete that I couldn't if I didn't have the enhancements? But it's going to really vary depending on the type of technology they're thinking of using. It will impact training. It will impact the soldier when he or she comes off the battlefield. And these uh, Steve Austins. Gentlemen, we can rebuild him. We have the technology. Raise a lot of legal questions, ethical questions, social questions. What are the main ones that you're dealing with? So there are a range of questions that come up, uh, particularly uh, in the military area, but not only. So one that's unique to, to the military field is there are requirements in international law with regard to developing new weapons and a, a process that you're supposed to a review that you're supposed to put a new weapon through. Uh, and once we start 
enhancing humans with with all sorts of uh, and it can be sort of mechanical or, or implants and so on at what point if any does the human become the weapon and all the rules that exactly. apply to humans and those that apply to weapons are different exactly you know and do we have to start putting human beings through a weapons review process so so that's an interesting one that can come up in in a particular um military context there also in at the developmental stage uh there there are very interesting ethical questions on how do you even go about uh, developing these technologies in terms of experimenting on people Uh, so when it's for therapeutic purposes that's one thing you can get approvals from various ethics boards in the different countries but if we say well we want to cut open this person's skull and and put a, an electrode there in order to to improve certain things but the person has no illness or 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 no you know there's nothing that needs therapeutically to to be Do done no with harm. yeah and it's just because we might be able to enhance it's much more difficult to get that through an ethical uh, review process so there are questions around the regulation once you're actually using the technologies there's a whole host of uh, legal questions such as uh, the privacy of the person concerned right because uh, if we have say cognitive or brain computer interfaces we may well be in the field where we are now uh, able to record your mind right uh, so, so there are obvious uh, uh, privacy concerns that arise from that there's the consent question and again in the military that can prove to be a, a unique problem uh, in that if, if you're a conscript exactly you're a conscript and you're told well you know all soldiers get enhanced <laughs> you have to do it Exactly can you refuse to be enhanced can you refuse on on conscientious grounds on religious grounds enhancement technologies are going to have to be tested somehow in history we've seen that soldiers were used as guinea pigs for different kinds of uh, weapons and then psychological um, manipulation are are uh, soldiers going to turn into guinea pigs I think the the question of informed consent in the military is always an incredibly difficult one simply because of its hierarchical structure um and and even well, i mean you've alluded to and and there are definite examples of of when that has been abused there are also examples of with the best will in the world they were they were the aim was to give them informed consent but that idea of getting informed consent didn't quite filter down into the field the soldiers actually in the field were told well i don't know what the drug does but you're going to take it anyway um even though you know the higher ups had said you need to get informed consent so so difficulties both in wanting to do it and also in and actually executing it when it is wanting to be done there are there are issues there yeah and i think that's part of what we have to think about what it takes to achieve informed consent with some of these technologies because we're not sure of the long long term effects we're not sure of some of the side effects good or bad and so it you know to make it robust so that someone understands what they're agreeing to truly what they're agreeing to i think will be a real challenge with some of this technology it's basically taking away some of your autonomy but in a much more intrusive and sometimes irreversible way and and that's one of the i i think one of the key issues when we look at uh, enhancements is uh, to see to what extent they are reversible or not uh, and reversible is not necessarily just about physically you know i put something in your body and then can i take it out uh, because the brain can adapt to changes so if we give you a certain capability and you have that say for 4 years while you're a soldier 
Uh, even if we say we can take it out afterwards, we may have changed the wiring in your brain. Like astronauts coming back from space and having a very different blood circulation and bone uh, consistency, uh, things that change and cannot unchange immediately. And these, and, and these can be uh, physiological changes, but they can also be uh, in terms of mental, uh, in terms of how you view yourself, uh, and, and there's a question of what kind of changes and risks, even if we say we can take it out afterwards, what have we done to the person? She's like electronic PTSD. And well, there's also a question of if we leave it in. So if we say, uh, that's fine, we, we don't reverse it, but then do we enhance people for military purposes, and then once they're out the military, we, we've got this other class of people walking around with, with extra capabilities that may only have been accessible to the military, but not to the wider society. That, that can cause some, uh, cause some questions as well. What about having um, your free will taken from you using those enhancements? And can soldiers be held responsible for um, what they do under the influence of those enhancements? Really good question. Human enhancement on a different, uh, it would depend entirely on, on the enhancement, basically. Um, so there are some enhancements that will possibly affect free will and and might incur questions of individual criminal responsibility for for what they carry on in the situation that you are talking about. I think maybe you're you're getting at the idea that the firing lock might be hacked, so someone will put the firing lock on that the soldier did not not want it on. Then then yeah, you're starting to look at at the soldier not being able to act as they choose to act. Not necessarily hacking, it might be the way those systems are built to overcome uh, conscientious objections and individual decisions by soldiers. Well, I think, one, that would be unlawful. I mean, uh, but that doesn't mean it wouldn't happen. So let's just put that, tuck that aside and just assume it has happened or it was developed in a way that that was sort of um, not thought through or it wasn't wasn't detected. Um the issue there is, would you be able to show that it, the system was designed that way so you could absolve the individual of accountability by showing they, they didn't actually make the choice? So the intent wasn't there. So in the law, you need the, the, men, the intent mentally and the action as well. Um, and so as, that would be very challenging. But if you could show that, then I would say they wouldn't be accountable. No, I mean, there's a defense in international criminal law of automatism. Um, where a person is not in control of their actions, and that would be a very similar parallel. It's not identical, but it's a very similar parallel, which would absolve the would absolve the soldier. And and then, as as Erin has said, that, that it takes away your your mens rea, your mental element, your intent to act. Will enhanced soldiers be treated differently than regular ones? Will they train together? Will they live together in their quarters? Will they get the same medical attention? That's an excellent question. One that probably psychologists are better placed to answer than lawyers. From a legal perspective, there's no reason why they would be treated differently other than if they're captured, in which case there might be some factors that we need to take into account. If you think about a soldier that's been biochemically enhanced, so they've taken drugs or something to make them into a super soldier, you're going to see a very sharp drop off when they no longer are taking those drugs. Under the law of armed conflict, as it stands at the moment, if you find that someone who you have taken prisoner, who's a prisoner of war, is uh, is experiencing a condition that can't be fixed easily, then you have a requirement to return them home. If you happen to know that that uh, that that soldier was enhanced and perhaps they're just returning to a normal baseline, that's really going to confuse those uh, those types of assessments. 
you can't really uh, neutralize a person the same way you neutralize a weapon. So you'd have that as an ethics and, and morality uh, issue as well. Yes. Now, if they're in battle, if they're in conflict, whether they're on the, the drug or not, you may not know, right? And, and if you can self-defend and so you can use lethal force in those situations, but they would obviously take on quite a bit more risk and they do take on quite a bit more risk than they would in other cases. So it's in some sense, they aren't, there's a sense, a loss of agency that's, I think, important in that application. As this is not traditional war, you could try fighting by, for example, hacking the, um, not literally, <laughs> not physically, but hacking the uh, enemy soldiers. Right. So those are vulnerabilities that exist in some of the tech. And, and um, as we're discussing at this workshop in brain-computer interfaces, there are serious vulnerabilities potentially there. How they can be hacked or whether they can be hacked, it's unclear. But once you start doing certain things, you expose yourself to those areas of potential weakness. So one of the other questions that you'll have when you're when you're deploying armed forces that are a combination of both enhanced and unenhanced and and the choices that you make about countering those is the question of how will your counterattack affect the other so so if you're countering an enhanced soldier how what effect is that weapon going to have on unenhanced soldiers given that for the most part you may not be able to tell the difference between who's enhanced and who's unenhanced and that's going to factor into into your analysis when you're looking at your ability to field the weapon, and also whether or not you're going to cause superfluous injury or unnecessary suffering, which is one of the principles of, of international humanitarian law, the law of armed conflict that governs armed conflicts and governs the, the conduct of hostilities. Something like, if I can neutralize the soldier without harming him, I'm not allowed or not supposed to like fry his brain if he has a chip in his brain? That's certainly one interpretation. And there are some injuries that we as international lawyers, as, as humanity, have decided that we're not prepared to go with. So, for example, blinding laser weapons were, were a weapon that was being developed that was never fielded by any army and was prohibited on the grounds of the fact that it caused unnecessary suffering before it was ever deployed. On the grounds that permanent blindness simply wasn't necessary compared to any military advantage, we might feel the same way about inflicting permanent brain damage on someone. There are also um, war ethic questions, like, is it fair to um, wage a war against um, a rival uh, who is not as technologically advanced, and like you come there with a skeleton, exoskeleton and just crush a person because they don't have the technology or the way to... Um, to uh, resist it, to, to protect themselves. And in a sense, maybe it's a funny term, but the fairness, the unlevel playing field of war? Yeah. Uh, by the way, you say, you know, you, you show up there with the exoskeleton. Of course, the ultimate will be when you don't have to show up there at all. So you operate your you, you exoskeleton uh, staying, staying on base and there's some kind of physical avatar of, uh, of you that, that moves exactly according to your movements on the battlefield. So, you know, you fight literally while staying at home, but there's some, something else out there um, that looks like you or, or a human figure doing, doing all the fighting. So it can go in lots of directions. Absolutely, there is a question uh, in, in that regard, but uh, asymmetric uh, warfare is not a new concept. Right, I mean that goes back uh, throughout the civilizations. You've always had, uh, you know, you've had you've had people with the with with rifles fighting against people with spears, right? You know, the first uh, the first people that had the crossbows when the other side didn't have them. Uh, th th that's that's part of the history of war. It's is asymmetric warfare. Uh, it, it perhaps 
with some of these technological advances uh, becomes uh, a little more disconcerting, but conceptually um, it's not new. Of, of course, and another way of looking at this is do we reach a stage where everyone would have these technologies and you fight wars uh, through these uh, proxy <laughs> machines that we send out there and nobody has to get killed at all? Uh, that's maybe a little uh, sort of utopian, but, uh, but it's interesting directions one can think of that this might take. Do you foresee that using enhanced soldiers will actually make battlefields less lethal? I haven't thought about that. It's possible. So it's, it's, it's like it would be ideal, right? Um, I can imagine maybe there are ways to temporarily neutralize enhanced soldiers we could come up with that wouldn't cause permanent physical harm the way we see that. Maybe it is through, um, you talked about zapping the, the, the chip in the brain, but maybe, maybe there could be a way to, to hack it where it, it sort of temporarily takes that person out, but it's not a long-term use of you know, long-term lethal force or, or something with long-term damage. And if you're thinking about other forms of, of enhancement, then we're looking at more passive use of, of brain-computer interfaces. You're using them to, to sift vast amounts of information very, very quickly. So there are some technologies out there that are looking for a particular spike in brain waves that, that are sort of the precursor to recognition, the P300 um, spike. And so then that can also be a way of sifting through a lot of data. And the soldiers at the moment are receiving so much data than, than they have ever had before. The more data you have, the better you can be at discriminating as long as you can make use of that data. So if you can, if you can work it so that the soldiers are working in cooperation with, with algorithms that allow them to be more discriminate in battle, um, that enable them to work out what is a threat and what is not a threat, and there are a couple of systems on the market already that are trying to, to work with that, then, then that's obviously going to be a good thing. There's another one that, that is not even in prototype yet, but, the, but they're kind of working on it as, in the labs um, that would put a firing lock uh, in place. Apparently, there is a, a milliseconds difference between when you recognize something as a threat and, um, and then realize that you've made a mistake. Uh, and so there's been been the study that's looking at well if we can tap into that realization that you've made a mistake and and activate the lock before you have a chance to pull the trigger, um, then that would also prevent friendly fire deaths. Obviously, anything that prevents friendly fire death will also be useful in realizing that you've misidentified a civilian as a legitimate target and prevent civilian death. From the legal point of view, uh, are legislators already talking about what they should do with enhanced uh, humans in the army? Oh, no, no. Uh, for, well, first of all, the science is at very, very early stages. So although many of these issues have been looked at for decades, we're still quite far from uh, at least the, the sort of the, uh, the more exciting things that I may have mentioned, they're still quite far away. Uh, there, there's this big debate still on uh, whether for cognitive enhancements you need to have an invasive procedure or not. And there's sort of two camps in terms of uh, developing this. Some, some say, well, we'll never actually really be able to get there without an invasive uh, uh, implant. And, and others that say, yes, but we'll never have the, the ethical approval and we'll never be able to do that. So we have to find other ways through optical and, and, and other ways to, to get to the brain uh, without that. So, so the, some of the technology here is in fairly early stages, but other things is, is quite advanced, certainly in terms of prosthetics and um, pharmaceutical uh, and so on. The, the discussion over regulation is really, really in its infancy, if at all, uh, unlike other areas of, uh, in, in the cyber world or in uh, artificial intelligence where everyone's talking about them. 
this really seems to be going under the radar, and that's one of the the things that uh, drew me to this to this topic is because you know everyone's obsessed with with AI and with robots, but we're going to have cyborgs before we have robots. Drones are killing people today uh, um, for for armies, for countries, and there's not much discussion uh, legislatively speaking uh, about this area. Well, for dro- drones is a, di- is, is a different um, issue, and I, I'm, I'm not certain that one needs too much specific legislation for it, because from a legal perspective, there's not much of a difference whether there's someone sitting in the cockpit of the, of, of the plane or not. So most of the legal questions surrounding the use of drones are, are standard legal questions that were there before and continue uh, um, after. But with, with some of these other technologies, there are new questions that, uh, that need to be asked. We're, we're nowhere near asking them. Uh, there's uh, one of my favorite quotations from, from Isaac Asimov is, is uh, the sad thing about society today uh, is that uh, we gather knowledge faster than we gather wisdom. Uh, and, and that's true with most of these technologies, and particularly when we're using them for military purposes. We're, we're, we're catching up on all the legal and ethical questions while the technology race is ahead. I would like to thank our guests, Professor Noam Lubel. Thank you. Um, advocate Erin Hahn. Thank you. And Dr. Heather Harrison-Dennis. Thank you very much. You're welcome. That's it for this episode of Lex Kibernetica. I'm Ido Kainan, and see you in cyberspace. This was Lex Kibernetica. Lex Kibernetica. More episodes are available at the Hebrew University Cybersecurity Research Center site at csrcl.huji.ac.il.